Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, listeners, to Hidden History Happy Hour's special St. Patrick's Day edition. And if you heard air quotes in my voice around the word saint, it's because you're about to learn that virtually everything you know about this story, this special St. Patrick's Day week story, is wrong. But fortunately, the real story is so much better than the one you know. And that's one of the value adds of the Hidden History Happy Hour, wouldn't you say, Alex Dean? I would indeed. Also, of course, we expect you all to have a great time responsibly. So join us, listeners, in a healthy dram of what are we drinking, Alex? I'm drinking some Irish whiskey, of course. As am I. Any listeners who have opened a green beer, sign off now, but still give us five stars. Now, we're very fortunate, listeners, to have caught Avi Lieberman, comedian extraordinaire and St. Patrick historian. And as we speak in March of 2022, I think we need not point out to everyone that stand-up comedians can successfully take on additional duties. Amen. Oh, I literally comes to us by a planes, trains, automobiles, and at least one bus. Before we get to the remarkable and true facts about Patrick, Avi, that you discovered in researching your excellent screenplay on the subject, tell us about your recent comedy tour. Yes, we just recently finished doing a charity tour of Israel where I bring three other comedians with me here to perform. And it benefits a charity called the Kobe Mandel Foundation. They work with children of trauma and they have like a grieving, grieving mother's group. It's named after a boy, Kobe Mandel, who was uh, killed by terrorists years ago. And they have a summer camp for kids and all that kind of stuff. So then it entertains a bunch of the people in Israel and at the same time uh, raises some money for a really great charity. So we just finished that. Had a great time. And uh, I was here with uh, Ian Bag, Gina Brian, and Amir K, three great comedians from the States. So, and then just before that, I was in Russia. Oh, boy. Which is uh, mildly in the news lately. <laughs> uh, I was doing shows there, but it was before all the, all the craziness started. Avi is also the author of a great new book, Traveling During the Pandemic. But Avi, why Patrick? So you're in Ireland and inspiration hits? Um, you know, you see the images of Patrick around here. And then I just didn't, you know, know about him. And I, I don't remember the exact moment. Like I wrote a screenplay about Miriam. And uh, I sort of remember the exact moment when that sort of hit me. I don't remember the exact moment of Patrick. It was just like a culmination of being there for the week. And I would sort of ask around, like, well, who is this guy? Because I've heard of, it, like everybody else, I'd heard of St. Patrick's Day. I just didn't really know that much about him. And I just became more fascinated the more I learned about him and his story. And then I, I began to watch whatever I could about him from videos. To, and then I began reading about it and learning about it. And in the end, uh, it led to me meeting with a professor of Celtic studies a couple of times and tracking down someone who did a documentary about him and then putting me in touch with one of the guys who helped on that documentary, you know, and that's kind of how it started. And I was just like amazed at this guy's story. I said, if you made this up, uh, I wouldn't believe it. If you were, like if you were to pitch this as a Hollywood script, I'd be like, it's so, that's absurd. There's no way that that happened, but it did happen because we have his writings. We have the Confessions of St. Patrick, really the Confessions of Patrick, but um, hmm. you leave the same part out, which we'll talk about that in a second. But, and I was just like, how has this not been made into a feature yeah. film? Like this guy's 
this is great. You know, it's great stuff. And this is coming from a big Jew like me. So, you know. So as a youngin in the United States, I don't believe a minute was spent in our elementary or middle schools on Patrick. And that's not really surprising because as the British like to say, American history takes about 20 minutes and we don't talk about much of anything else. But Alex, what did you learn, if anything, about St. Patrick as a young man? I would point out that he's one of the four patron saints of the four countries of my country. So we are United Kingdom. And if you stand in the lobby of our House of Commons, our House of Parliament, hence the term lobbyist, by the way, if you're trying to mm -hmm. grab someone by the lapels and uh, make your argument to them as they come past, uh, if you stand there, you will see the sign of the four patron saints. And Northern Ireland uh, and uh, Southern Ireland or the Republic have had a little local difficulty about which you might have heard or, <laughs> or might not. Uh, but either way, Ireland is still reflected in the symbolism and the importance of our uh, Houses of Parliament. And I, I would point to that as the first and foremost thing that I, I learned. I have a um, illustration on my wall of the four patron saints of our countries that was gifted to me by my father. They happen to all be uh, drunk in the cartoon that I'm looking at now, but um, I'm sure they could also be sober and have the same kind of significance. Patrick, alongside the patron saints of the rest of the home nations, uh, takes his proud place as one of the, uh, rightly or wrongly, adopted uh, saints of these four United Kingdoms. Okay. So with my ignorance and Alex's ignorance about St. Patrick clearly established, please set us straight, Avi. Start with the where and the when of the historical Patrick. Well, it's interesting you bring up Wales, because speaking of Wales, uh, that's where Patrick would be from. That's where he's from. There's even a debate about when he was around. Most people think like early 4th century, um, around that time, but it, it's, there are some debates. The professor I met with thinks it's a little bit later than what some people think. He is from a place called Banavin, which would be nowadays Wales, but he was a Roman citizen. You know, it was sort of it towards the end of the Roman Empire. Rich kid, grandfather was a priest, father was a deacon. He was a Christian in the Roman Empire. Grew up kind of a, you know, wealthy family, were like landowners in a sense, and did very well. And he was a total rebel like didn't didn't buy into any of it knew how to read essentially was a smart kid but uh rejected it all didn't go to church and like any of it he gets kidnapped by irish pirates when he was 16. <laughs> you know irish pirates everyone knows about them yeah a buddy of mine my friend she goes you know avi any movie that begins kidnapped by irish pirates i'm in i'm mm -hmm. curious what the hell that's about hundred percent and he sold as a slave to ireland where essentially that was like a common it was the norm back then that that was a big trade in an industry and was for centuries. He gets taken, sold to slavery, and the family that he's with, he sort of goes into the field. They make him a shepherd. You know, he doesn't really have any skills at that age the, and sort of finds God in the fields. But then, you know, he was educated, so he knew about it, but then just wasn't really a believer or into it that much. And over that time period, finds his calling in a sense and, you know, becomes heavily involved in like prayer. And after a few years, he escapes. Now, Alex, in previous episode, we've discussed slavery and we've especially discussed the heroic role that the British Navy played in enforcing the end of slavery. And if I recall correctly, you've made the statement that 
there was no slavery on British soil, English soil. I take it that would not exclude the possibility that a slave could be kidnapped off of British soil and taken into slavery, or do we not count whales, or how do we account for that? No, many people were seized from um, the British Isles and taken into slavery. That is definitely my book. The point that I would make is that people weren't uh, legitimately enslaved in the British Isles. That's the point. So people were taken from there and made slaves in places like Ireland. That that's that's consistent with what you understand. To Ireland, that would still be strange to me. It was on the continent and to Africa, especially given the extent to which we and our friends in Ireland regarded ourselves as one happy family at the time, which is famously <laughs> famously positive. Avi, how did Patrick feel about slavery? There's a, a letter that uh, Patrick writes to a guy named Caroticus where he sort of chews him out. And it's interesting. It's even that far back. He sort of he rips into him about uh, he was trading Christian slaves. So he couldn't really say you can sort of read into it. It sort of reminds me in a sense of uh, Jefferson, you know, in the United States of like slavery was so part of the regular society to say we're stopping all slavery would have been seen as like lunacy. But you get the sort of vibe because he went through it himself. His way of saying, well, how about no Christian slaves? That's sort of his way to say look, I know this is wrong, but it's a huge industry and there's no way I can you know, shut it down on my own. But he was, seemed like ahead of his time in a sense, sort of ripping into this guy for trading people back and forth. The way I frame it in the, in the screenplay is that he basically leaves because he sort of feels like he can't really grow anymore in his faith. I think, you know, he had a pretty decent relationship with, with the people he was staying with. That, you know, he was there for years. So he obviously got to know Irish culture and got to know the people. He needs to go back, I think, because he wants to go back and further his studies. He wants to further himself and his beliefs. Then only guy ever of ancient record to, you know, escape his slavery, make it back across an ocean, reunite with his family, and then voluntarily go back to his captors. But like while he's in Ireland, that's where he furthers his studies. He wants to go back to Ireland. And he actually, this is true. He talks about this in his, in his confession that he has a dream in a sense. And there's a man in Ireland who sort of hands him some scrolls. And that's sort of his calling to like, you need to come back here. You need to come back to Ireland. And he wants to become a bishop of Ireland. Okay, Avi, our listeners have waited way too long for the answer to the only question that matters. And with apologies to the great Samuel L. Jackson, what about those goddamn snakes? Actually, the the myth about you know, drove the snakes out of Ireland. That's symbolic. There haven't been snakes in Ireland since the Ice Age. <laughs> there are no snakes right. in Ireland. That's kind of where that comes from. But that was symbolic of the Druids, that he sort of drove the Druids. But even when I was doing the research, I mean, as like a Jew, I'm like, okay, where's the part where he kills all the Jews or whatever? And like, it just doesn't happen. He's just kind of a pretty good guy from beginning to end. <laughs> he just kind of wanders the countryside trying to teach people how to read and learn about Christianity and history and all those kinds of things. And that was kind of it. I was just like, he seemed like a pretty good guy from beginning to end. So why does Patrick voluntarily return to his captors? Why would anyone do that? I think it was a combination of that dream that he felt like that's somewhere where he could make a difference. So Avi, after all that Patrick did and didn't do, is he actually a saint? He's accused of a sin, right? So, and I don't know whether this is just because he was doing things sort of his own way in Ireland and they sort of got jealous because of the success he had. The Catholic Church loves that, by the way, entrepreneurship. (laughs) 
or the fact that he wasn't doing it the way they wanted, sort of by the letter of the law. He's accused of the sin and he's supposed to go back to the island and defend himself. And he kind of tells him to stick it. Like he, he says, <laughs> I've got too much to do here in Ireland. It's, you know, so he did still sort of while he loved the church, obviously, and, you know, and it made him who he was in a sense. He felt he had a higher calling, other things to do. And he doesn't return. He stays in Ireland, kind of wandering the countryside, doing what you're supposed to do. And I think for that reason, he's never officially canonized. So he's sort of known as the people saint. Avi, we have time for one more surprise for our listeners with regard to St. Patrick's Day. What will they be surprised about? Even when it comes to like the St. Patrick's Day parade, that was started in the United States. My buddy Thomas, who lives in, uh, in Dublin, he said, he knows plenty of Irish people. They will go to New York for the St. Patrick's Day parade. <laughs> it's a way bigger deal in the U.S. And he said, nowadays, every, every city and every town in Ireland has a St. Patrick's Day celebration. But they all say it's nothing compared to New York or like what the United States does for it. So no snakes, no saint, no green beer. But otherwise, everything we know about St. Patrick is true. Outside of that, yes. Well, listeners. A St. Patrick's Day episode would not be complete without a story from Lessons of History about Irish stuff. Irish stuff. Irish stuff, right? It's a term of art. It is like the title of my book, Lessons from History. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and, and so I, I would imagine, Alex Dean, that most of our listeners don't even know that there are Irish crown jewels. Why don't you educate us? The first thing you know about the Irish crown jewels is that they're not crown jewels. It's like the first rule of Fight Club. <laughs> right. The Irish crown jewels were the jewels of the Order of St. Patrick. Uh, that's the equivalent of the, uh, in my country, in England, it's the Order of the Garter, or in Scotland, the Order of the Thistle. And there was the Order of St. Patrick, equally illustrious. And uh, it was 394 jewels, that's a lot of jewels, uh, that were taken from the English crown jewels and gifted to the Order of St. Patrick in 1831. So the Grand Bar of Ireland, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Viceroy of Ireland, would wear those uh, Irish crown jewels as the living symbol of power of Britain in Ireland from then on. Let me ask you a question about this, Alex. So, you know, we like to take a humorous look at history, and your book certainly does that, and, and our podcast does that. Yeah. What was the actual intent and effect of wearing those jewels in public? What, what were we trying to signal at that point? Well, obviously, British rule in Ireland was immensely popular at the time. It, it, it was, uh, fated, <laughs> yeah, it was fated and, and loved is the, is the point. Now, it, there was, a, there was a, uh, an Anglo-Irish tradition which has been vigorously stamped upon in, in the, the time of um, independence for Ireland um, that uh, was a governing class. And that governing class had its own hierarchy. And they were, um, they called them the big houses, and many of them were, um, would you, Adam and Eve, it were the victims of fires, of course, of the time of, of separation. Uh, but before that, there were various big houses in which Anglo-Irish aristocracy uh, lived and ran bits of Ireland and up the tree from them ultimately came uh, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And he was the uh, queen or kings, depending on the 
occupant of the throne at the time, representative in that country. And there was also a House of Commons and a House of Lords in, in, in Ireland before it was merged into the Westminster Parliament. But the point is that there was a Lord Lieutenant um, in Ireland. And the point about this story is that by 1907, which is, if you think about history, it's not that long ago. Um, in 1907, uh, the Earl of Aberdeen uh, was the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the representative of, of the British Crown in Dublin. And the jewels, uh, the Irish Crown jewels, were kept in the Bedford Tower in Dublin Castle. And there was uh, the Ulster King of Arms was the person responsible for safekeeping of them. The person occupying that role at the time of the story in 1907, Sir Arthur Vickers. Now, as our joking implies, Brian, that castle uh, was something of a focal point for discontent. And it was guarded around the clock by both the police and the army. So, Alex, Alex, this was a while ago. Are you, are you saying that the run-of-the-mill Dubliner was not super happy with English rule? Is that Some people were. And as some of my Irish friends are keen to point out, looking at the architecture of their capital, Dublin is a British city and the way that it's laid out and the way that its architecture is built. On the other hand, there were many people who resented uh, British rule and wished for Irish independence. And with any question like that, there were two sides of, a, of opinion and things could get um, ugly. And therefore, there was a, a castle which was guarded around the clock by both the police and the army. And there was a strong room in, uh, in Dublin Castle, which contained the crown jewels, but a uh, classic snafu as you say in the united states after building that strong room the a-team guarding uh, the palace found that the safe that was meant to go into it was too big to go through the door oh god our military fans will recognize this alex as a charlie foxtrot charlie foxtrot is what it is so the jewels were kept in the safe in the library because they couldn't get through the door into the strong room Please tell me Colonel Mustard wasn't involved. We're getting perilously close to it, uh, particularly given that one of my characters is called Arthur Vickers, the Ulster <laughs> King of Arms. Sir Arthur had the keys for this uh, safe, on one at his home and one on him, on his person at all times. Unfortunately, Brian, Sir Arthur was a legendary bruiser of impressive pedigree. Which you hardly hear about in our Not stories. enough. You hear about it a lot, but not enough. And it was also very <laughs> forgetful. Uh, and famously, after one suitably heavy session, Sir Arthur woke up wearing the jewels because he, he'd <laughs> passed out and his mates had gone off and taken the keys off him and gone and unlocked the safe and taken the jewels out and dressed him in them. That is a decent prank. Yeah, on the, on the other hand, let's agree, given that the crown jewels security wasn't great. <laughs> yes. So, one fine Dublin morning, Bedford Tower. Everyone's waking up, and the cleaning lady in Bedford Tower finds the door of the strong room left open. Now, Oof. the inner door is still locked, but the ring of keys, which open the strong room and the library, are stuck there in the lock. So, someone's clearly been up to no good. Uh, this is reported to Sir Arthur. As my uh, description of him implies, he was not really one to panic, uh, rather blasé, rather implacable. Uh, he didn't bother to check the safe after the open doors were discovered. <laughs> Only later that day, sending someone to put something in the safe, was it discovered. This is like the worst version of Ocean's Eleven you could possibly imagine. Well, quite, because in Ocean's Eleven, they're trying to protect the stuff that got right. nicked. Right? <laughs> right. Later that day, he sends someone <laughs> to put something in the safe. 
And you'll be very surprised to hear this. Shocked. The jewels were gone. Mm. So, as ill luck would have it for Sir Arthur, you don't have much time to cover up for this because Edward VII, king at the time, is due in town for the investment of the new member of the Order of St. Patrick that week. And guess what? You've got to get the crown jewels of the Order of St. Patrick out for the investment. Reported to the king, he was not impressed. Uh, I, uh, my notes, I'm afraid, do not recall the name of the poor blameless newbie who was going to be inducted into the order. But sadly for him, the ceremony was cancelled. Off the rails, we say, yeah. Indeed. Uh, the Dublin Metropolitan Police investigates. And I think we can agree we have a certain amount of pity for the man who gets the hospital pass that is this investigation. Brian, suspect number one. And yes. get ready for the smelling salts. And, and uh, let me just add, you know, you know your Columbo. So you're going to tell this in a way that is a detective story. Suspect number one, Sir Arthur Vickers. I know this is a huge shock to you, Brian. Yeah. But did he have the means? <laughs> yes, he did. Opportunity? Did he have opportunity? Absolutely. Motive? Well, what was to be the motive? The jewels were worth a packet, right? But he had no financial problems. Very hard to fence. It was hard. I mean, you couldn't fence them successfully. So really right. no motive. Besides, ample evidence of magnificent levels of incompetence. Yes. But no actual evidence against him. So he was still fired, obviously, because it was on his watch that these things were lost. He protested his innocence until the day he died, which was quite soon. <laughs> Because unsportingly, given how amply he demonstrated his incompetence and inability mm -hmm. to serve the British crown. Literally. Yeah, the IOA, the IOA murdered him. So uh, that was uh, the end of uh, Sir Arthur. You might have thought they would have let him go on as a laughing stock and a demonstration of the uh, foolishness of British rule in Ireland. But nevertheless, they bumped him off. Suspect number two was mm -hmm. Pierce O'Mahony, uh, who was Arthur's assistant and his half-brother. There was no evidence against him at all beyond the obvious association with his dim-witted boss. So he just got his name dragged through the mud for, for no good. Suspect number three was Francis Shackleton. And this is an interesting one, Brian, because he was the brother of the explorer Ernest Get Shackleton. out. No, I'm Get serious. Out. I was going to ask you that, jokingly. He was the brother of Ernest Shackleton. And maybe huh. he did it, and maybe he didn't. Maybe it funded the expedition. And I always like to point out, he was convicted separately of fraud in 1914 so that's you've kept track of the dates that's seven years later than yeah. what we're concerned about so plainly he was a wrong one, right mm -hmm. which you might think is indicative he changed his name and he vanished never to be seen again after finishing his prison sentence so he had means yes he had the opportunity lifting keys from a massive boozer of a boss yes mm -hmm. motive keen on cash yes Case open. My fourth and last suspect was a, a person called Francis Bennett Goldney, who was completely unsuspected at the time of the uh, lifting. And he rejoiced in the title of Athlone Poursuivant, which I know is uh, <laughs> familiar to you, but it was Dublin Castle's equivalent of vice president at a US bank. Uh -huh. Big title, very junior in, in reality. It's like every every teller in an American bank is the vice right. president. Right. So so he had the means, uh, as everyone did, hanging around uh, Sir Arthur. Motive, 
not very well paid and opportunity hanging around so Arthur, yes but mm, the question about real motive with this guy was interesting and open uh, until long after these events he died in a car crash towards the end of the first world war in 1918 and a load of stolen goods were recovered from his uh-huh. house from his house but the point is no stolen crown jewels. Remember, I told so you. So you'd think if he had the crown if jewels, he had they would them, have been with the other loot. fence them, they would have been there. So mm-hmm. it's almost, you know, there was no evidence to connect him to the crown jewels. And they found his stash when he died accidentally. So, you know, all case open against him, but real no, uh, no progress against him. And Brian, that's the whole list of suspects. And you will note Matt, despite all of the tension in the islands of my home country uh, over home rule for Ireland at the time, there was no hint of republicanism, no hint of an attack on the government of the day. This, it seems, was a case purely about venality and incompetence, and it was an all-British incompetent venal affair. So the investigation for want of leads or for fear of what else it might uncover amongst the loose Brits boozing away their days at the castle petered out. The jewels remain missing Yes. to this day. To this day, there is a very interesting memorandum in the papers of the new Irish state, which came to light on the public records some 50 years. So we have these um, restrictions on uh, records. Right, because you're much less uh, value valuing privacy than we are in the United. Well, let's let's say that maybe we're more valuing privacy given we restrict <laughs> them this long. But one of those, yeah. Um, so we have so a thirty-year rule, a fifty-year rule, a hundred-year rule. All of them, on one view, unjustified. But anyway, fifty years after the writing of a paper in the Irish State in 1927, there was an offer made in 1927 to sell the jewels back to the new country of Ireland. Get out. No, I'm serious. It was made by person or persons unknown. Whether the offer was genuine or not, it was not pursued. And that did not emerge until 50 years later. How do you do an anonymous offer in 1920? So somebody said, if you're interested, respond. Like in the newspaper? In the column, public column or post back to this post box. It wasn't taken up. So the jewels remain missing to this day. So... Uh, does Francis Shackleton remains missing to this day? I doubt very much he's alive, but you know, not not tracked down. The blameless last night of the Order of St. Patrick died jewelless in 1974. As far as we know, jewelless. And uh, yeah. Brian, I want to offer you, as I did in my book, I want to offer you a lesson from this story. If you are charged with the grave and weighty responsibility of selecting someone to guard priceless jewels. Offer that person a brandy and then offer that person another brandy and then offer that person another brandy and so on. And if that person is on the deck before the end of the interview, reopen nominations. That's the lesson from today's story. Yes, it's a it's a profound lesson, Alex. And it's exactly the way that I recruited you for the privacy board of my car. Ah, and I passed that <laughs> test. You passed it with flying colors. I thank you. I put this out to all of our listeners. Can you crowdsource solve this mystery? If you can, there will be a reward to you from Hidden History Happy Hour. 
Not going to say what it is today, but it's out there. The Hidden History app will absolutely reward you. And to be fair to the listeners trying to track that down, I just want to give two more facts. Fact one, Sir Arthur, before his death at the hands of the IRA, publicly accused Shackleton of having done it. What his motives were for doing that and what his evidence was, we don't know because he got killed. Fact two, Scotland Yard was sent to investigate that allegation. And... Scotland Yard publicly asserted that Shackleton hadn't done it. No records are available to us to underpin that assertion. And given the limited success of any investigation into the absence of the crown jewels, I think that account is not to be regarded as canonical. But nevertheless, those are the two things I can weigh up. Well, I was kidding before, but is there any credible theory that perhaps those jewels finance his brother's expedition to the South Pole? No, absolutely not. Uh, Shackleton didn't uh, need money from the jewels to finance his um, uh, his expedition. But Francis Shackleton was definitely a wrong one. Uh, the question is whether in the course of his criminal life, Shackleton, when he disappeared, was definitely a wrong one. He was convicted of fraud. When Shackleton disappeared from public life, Clearly, he was a wrong and he was involved in fraud, but there was no suggestion his brother was involved in anything like that. Uh, anything else our listeners should take from this story? I mean, look, it's an old story, but it's an informative story because right. it talks about the type of person that you would give responsibility to. And we sort of joked about the amount of booze they can consume, but you know, you should think about who you want to vest authority for your startup or your, you know, your IT business or whatever. I mean, character matters, right? Well, try this. Our, our Irish friends for uh, many a year, and you've got to remember in these islands, when I say many a year, that means something. It means centuries, not, not a year or two. We'll drive past somewhere in, in your country and you'll point out a building and say <laughs> that's the oldest building in the state. You know, we'll, we'll have road yes. markings older than that. Between England and Ireland, there's a happy rivalry, which is occasionally descended into less positive overtones. Our Irish friends will sometimes say that the British have foisted upon them their second-rate uh, administrators and their third-rate oppressors, and that we had visited upon them um, some of the worst and most incompetent uh, rules that has been seen in these islands. And I would like to think that the story that I've told you demonstrates we don't need to have anything to do with Ireland to demonstrate British incompetence. We don't need a single thing to touch the Emerald Isle to yeah. demonstrate. We can Fair. screw things up all on our own. And the, the tale of the Irish crown jewels, as befits this story, is an all British affair from start to finish. And taking the role of my great friend, Alex Dean. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers.